from Madison, Wisconsin in the United States of Global Hegemony, it's Didactic Syncast, with your host Eric P. Hello Earthlings and welcome to the Didactic Syncast, your overview of everything important on the planet Earth. I'm Eric S. Piotrowski, a writer and educator living in Wisconsin, USA. I am known as Duke Scath in the world of video games and Twitter, a.k.a. Scartol in the world of Wikipedia and Reddit. Today is Monday, the 10th of August, 2020. On this program, I bring you a range of news stories, historical and literary perspectives, and my thoughts on current events, war, human rights, economics, education, hip-hop music, and killer robots. So buckle up and let's get started. A little bit better and don't be. A brand new kid to show biz With knowledge I persevere But if I now do me a favor, favor. Let me in here Then we can find a rhyme to fill in space And drop the bass with a taste of It is a hot August afternoon in wisconsin and it's supposed to rain you may hear thunder in the background at some point but so far it hasn't rained so it's just humid and hot but i'm from florida i'm used to that this isn't hot you don't know what hot is anyway uh it's been a crazy month of august Uh, as many of you know last week i wrote a piece about the last of us 2 which is really awesome and it got a lot of love on the internet uh neil Druckmann, who uh created the last of us part 2 uh, he wrote and directed it. Uh, he, he said that it was a uh, valuable piece of criticism that articulated thoughts about the game that he, even he couldn't express. Uh, it was inspiring. So that was great to hear that because then it got, you know, a lot of love from other people, like a thousand likes for my post alone. His post got 3000 likes. So that was great. That was a really nice moment of getting some recognition for my writing, which I don't get a lot of those outside my circle of friends. And I'm very grateful for that circle of friends and everybody who's shown me love. Uh, but it's nice to get some, you know, recognition from professional writers as well. But anyway, in that piece, I mentioned that I was going to do a syncast about forgiveness and mercy. And here it is, because this is a very difficult time to be alive. We have a global pandemic going on. We have a looming environmental catastrophe. The economy of every nation is in serious trouble right now. And in the United States, we're in a specific kind of trouble because there is a death cult run by a narcissistic, psychopathic child in the White House. And it's very hard to know whether people in the United States, enough voters are going to wake up and recognize that this man is a danger to themselves and to others and to summon the blood and summon the capacity for empathy and compassion for other people and do the right thing and vote for someone that they don't love but they'll tolerate because he will put competent people into positions of authority and as many of you may know donald trump is currently trying to starve the post office because voting by mail is the way that it's going to happen for many americans and he's been waging this disinformation campaign about how unreliable voting by mail is even though he does it Uh, And he's starving the post office, which has been starved for many years. And I'd love to go into that, but we don't have time because I don't want to focus on Donald Trump right now. And that's part of what I'm talking about here. Anger is a big problem that a lot of people have. I struggle with anger, especially when it comes to video games. And if I can't get technology working right, for some reason, that gets me angry in a way that mechanical problems never do. If my car breaks, I'm always like, eh, whatever it's broken. I get someone to fix it. It is what it is. If uh, my bike breaks down, I'm like, oh, you know, whatever it broke. That's whatever. 
But if something goes wrong with software, I lose my mind. I get so furious. And I really don't understand why I get so mad about digital stuff and so not mad about analog stuff. But the point is this. We can deal with our anger and... One of the biggest mistakes that humans make is that we ignore our anger. And the other big mistake we make is that we cling to our anger. And I think one of the biggest things that we do, and this is what Ellie does in The Last of Us 2, spoilers, um, you know, w- w- we cling especially to anger against those people who have wronged us. And there's a couple of quotes I want to start with here when we talk about anger. Maya Angelou wrote a book in 1986 called All God's Children Need Traveling Shoes. And in that book, she writes this, quote, I always knew that fury was my natural enemy. It clotted my blood and clogged my pores. It literally blinded me so that I lost my peripheral vision. And that's a real important point because she suffered a lot of trauma, sexual assault at a young age and racism and discrimination and violence and hostility. And, and, you know, then there's just the average everyday poverty uh, and the violence that goes along with that. So she wanted to warn people against being angry. And I found a quote recently from Toni Morrison as well. And I don't remember the source of it, but here's the quote. She said, anger is a paralyzing emotion. People think it's an interesting, passionate, and igniting feeling. I don't think it's any of that. It's helpless. It's absence of control. I need all of my skills, all the control, all of my powers, and I need clarity in order to write. Anger doesn't provide any of that. I have no use for it whatsoever. And again, like Toni Morrison is one of the greatest writers in modern American history, and Maya Angelou is another. And I think that their points about anger are really important to contextualize this discussion of what to do with anger against people who have wronged us. I'm a big believer in forgiveness and mercy, and that's what I'm going to talk about today. There's a PDF that I'm going to link to this, and I'll talk about slides that are on, and I'm going to play some audio from some video clips that are in it. And I'll start by saying that I I don't believe in forgiveness for everything always instantly. Uh, When Dylan Roof, the white supremacist guy, went into the church in South Carolina, I think it was, and he opened fire on the black churchgoers there, you know, some of the family members of those victims forgave him during his arraignment. And some other members of the black community said that that was a mistake to instantly forgive. Killer Mike, the rapper from Run the Jewels, said that black people tend to forgive very quickly. And, you know, he said that we ought to black folks ought to demand something and get some justice before they start forgiving other people. And I think that it's important to remember that, you know, forgiving people instantly, always and and forever without ever demanding that the person who's doing the wrong thing change their ways, that that may not be wise because then you're just becoming a doormat. And the 19th century French novelist Honoré de Balzac uh, wrote a book called Le Père Goriot, which features this, no, no, sorry, that wasn't the wrong book, uh, La Cousine Bette, uh, features a character who just keeps cheating on his wife and cheating on his wife, and she forgives him every time. And, you know, by the end of the book, spoilers for La Cousine Bette, uh, she, you know, he, she finds him in this whorehouse, and he's, she's dragging him home once again, And he turns to her as he's getting into the carriage and he's like, can I bring the girl? And he's got this like 14 year old girl on his arm. And it's just like, holy crap. Like his mind is so addled and she has been such a doormat for so long that this is just the normal state of affairs. So those are extreme examples of what happens when people are too forgiving. But I think that in general, 
humankind is not forgiving enough. And I think that we need to learn the lessons of those who have found ways to forgive people who have done truly remarkable and horrible things. Because, not because we always have to be like them, but because they give us a glimpse of what mercy looks like in the most difficult of times so that we can employ it in more mundane circumstances, right? If someone cuts you off in traffic or somebody says something horrible to you on the internet, that's not a major deal, right? You know, and you, you, trolls on the internet, you know, okay, report them and, and you know, try to demand that the platform deal with it, of course. But if you cling to the nasty things that people say to you on the internet, or you cling to that person who cut you off in traffic, and you think, I need to get justice, I'm going to get in front of that person again and make slow way down and you know, that's just, that's just chasing the anger. That's letting that person control you in a way. And I, that's not healthy. And I've learned this the hard way, incidentally. This is not abstract for me. This is personal. So many of you know that when I was a teenager, I went to a public enemy concert in Jacksonville, Florida, and we were coming out of the concert and everyone's bumping into each other. And I may have bumped into this guy, but I think he was just looking to start a fight. And he accused me of scuffing his shoe. And I was like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And he just started beating the crap out of me. And it was a savage, horrifying experience. And I'll tell the whole story some other time if you want. But the point is that I was clinging to my anger toward that guy for a long time. And I never did anything stupid about it. But, but it, it really ate me up how furious I was at him. And eventually I realized that, you know what? Look, he was not right to do what he did. But I, I didn't want to hang on to that anger anymore. So I ended up forgiving him. And... You know, I, I'm no fool. I know the statistics about growing up in the ghetto. And he seemed like somebody who was probably filled with a lot of rage. I think if you're well adjusted and, you know, healed yourself from past trauma, you don't go around beating up strangers for bumping into you. So, you know, I worry that maybe this person got into more trouble or, you know, he attacked somebody who fought back in a harsh way because I didn't know how to fight back then and I still don't. So I, I have a feeling he may have pissed off the wrong person or the system ate him up or, or whatever, right? And so in the end, I've had a pretty decent life. And uh, I think that, you know, I just hope that that young man saw the error of his ways. And, and, and you know, if I did bump into him, I'm sorry. Uh, but, but I forgave him for what he did to me in part because, again, I didn't want to carry around that anger and that rage and that resentment and that, that sense of like, you know, someone stepped on me. I need to step on someone else to deal with it. The movie Slam, by the way, features a really important scene where this guy gets shot and his friend, you know, he's like, somebody else has to pay. And his friend tells him, look, there's no one you can shoot. You could not even the doctor to get your eyesight back. You could shoot the sun, he tells him, and everybody else would just be blind. And that's a deep lesson that a lot of people need to learn. So that's what I want to talk about here. So if you're looking at the slides on the PDF, cool. I will tell you when to go to the next slide. If not, that's okay. I'm not going to make this dependent on you looking at the slides. Uh, but you are invited to check them out because there are some video clips that I won't be playing here that you should check out at some point. Probably the most famous quote uh, about forgiveness comes from William Shakespeare uh, in The Merchant of Venice, where the character of Portia says, quote, The quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven. Upon the place beneath, it is twice blessed. It blesseth him that gives and him that takes. 
And I believe this is really true. So for those who don't speak fluent Shakespearean, let me break it down a little bit. Uh, you know, if something is strained, that means it goes through a strainer or it's, it's limited, right? So the quality of mercy, forgiveness, it's not strained. It comes easily, right? Like hey, rain from heaven. Yeah. Um, and it, twice blessed, right? The, the person that forgives is blessed and the person that is forgiven is blessed. Yeah. And that's why I think forgiveness and restorative justice, which isn't the same thing as forgiveness, but they're related. Um, I think it's a really powerful thing. Chances are you've been forgiven for something in your life, something major or something minor. And hopefully you know how powerful it is when someone forgives you, even though you're in the wrong. And that's the power of forgiveness, right? We are morally justified in holding a grudge. Yeah, someone cuts you off in traffic, they did something wrong. You were wounded by their actions. You are morally entitled to be angry. But forgiveness says you don't have to carry that anger around. And maybe you can help that other person sh learn the error of their ways by showing them forgiveness. Yeah, now again, if someone cuts you off in traffic, you're probably never going to see them again. So that it's hard to do it that way, right? That's Your forgiveness in that case is just for you. But if you interact with someone on a regular basis and they wrong you, you can sit down with them and say, look, you wronged me. It really hurt me. I'm mad. But I want you to know that I forgive you because I've done that sort of thing before and, and, and maybe you were just having a bad day or whatever. Um, and and I, I, I want you to make sure you don't do it again. But I also want you to know that I'm not going to you know, hold a grudge. I'm not going to hold it against you forever. I, I want you to learn and grow. And I think you're you know, uh, capable of doing better. I almost said, I, I think you're a good person, but I'm trying to avoid that kind of language. And if you read my piece about the white ego, you know that I got in there into questions about what it means to be a good person. And basically, I don't think there is such a thing as a good person. And the more we cling to this idea of I'm a good person, he's a bad person, that just oversimplifies the whole world. So let's try not to even talk about good people. All right, next slide here. Uh, Banke Yotaku was a really cool Zen monk from uh, Japan in, uh, I don't even remember the year, 17th century, I think. He said, quote, the true human ideal is to show kindness to those who are foolish and help those who are evil. Now, when I first read that quote, I was like, what are you talking about? Get the hell out of my face with that nonsense. But the more I lived and saw of the world, the more I realized that he's right. First of all, because most people who do things that are injurious are just foolish. They don't realize what they're doing, right? You think of Lenny and Mice and Men. Uh, he doesn't know his own strength. And I think a lot of people on the internet don't know the strength of their words. They think, well, I'm just joking or, you know, oh, you're taking it too seriously. Well, no, you're not recognizing the strength of your words. You think your words don't have any meaning, but they do. And that comes with some responsibility. So if somebody's just being foolish, uh, you know, we should show them kindness because we've all been foolish, right? I was a big foolish idiot when I was in middle school. At the age of 12, I was the most foolish moron in the world. I'm so glad YouTube didn't exist back then because I would have put videos on YouTube that would have embarrassed me forever. I might not have made it through middle school. I'm amazed that so many people get away with not being cyber bullied into a deep, dark hole. So we've all been foolish. We all do foolish things. Even now, I do foolish stuff on a regular basis. And I wish to be forgiven when I do foolish stuff. So as Emile Zola, the 19th century French novelist who came after Balzac, as Zola said, ought we not forgive others much if we wish to be forgiven ourselves? Yeah, right? And then Banke says, 
help those who are evil. And I was like, what? no, how do you help someone who's evil? What are you talking about? But then I read another story about Bonke, which actually lays it out. Here it is real quick. He's teaching at this school. There's a kid who steals something from another kid and he gets caught. And the kids say, you got to kick him out. And Bonke says, nope, we're going to forgive him. Let's go on with our studies. The kids are mad, but they're like, whatever. Okay, so time goes by. Kid steals something else. The other students are like, get rid of that kid. Bonke says, nope, we're going to forgive him. Kids are mad, but whatever. Third time it happens, the kids are like, look, Bonke, you're a good teacher, but this is ridiculous. He gets kicked out or we all leave. And Bonke looks the kids in the eyes and they say, if you have to leave, good luck. I don't want you to leave, but I think you know what you need to know in order to live good lives. This young man, he said, pointing to the thief, he doesn't know the difference between right and wrong. And if we don't teach him, who will? Now, in the story, in that moment, the thief broke down crying and he thanked Bonke. He was so grateful. He never stole again. He became the greatest student in the temple's history, blah, 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 which is all nonsense, of course. But the point is, it's a good story because it shows us that, you know, that's what it means to help those who are evil. People who do evil things. And I, again, I try to resist the idea of like, this person is evil, right? Okay, maybe Osama bin Laden was pure evil, whatever. I don't care. The point is most people who do evil things, they, again, they, they're misguided. They're, they're tempted by the wrong stuff. They're fixated on things. They're, they're, they've lost sight of their humanity somehow. And we have to help people who, are lo- who have lost sight of their humanity. That's what it means to help those who are evil. And I, I believe very strongly that it can happen. I don't think I've ever really seen it happen with my own eyes, but I've heard stories about people who have done horrible things and then realized later, like, that was evil what I did, and I have to atone for it, and thank heaven this person tried to show me the way. And, and, and if nothing else, I do believe, as Grace Lee Boggs said, that dialectic conversation, where you have a dialogue, that's important because people can change. And the more you cling to this story that people don't change, people just pretend like they're changing, that's a pessimistic worldview. And I just don't buy it because I've seen people change in small ways. I know that I've changed in big ways. And I believe it's true about other people too. I'm not special. I'm not different. I'm not unique. So we have to approach the world with that attitude of like, they can change. All right. Next slide brings us to Eva Moses Kaur. Now, this woman died very recently, but her story is amazing. Uh, she was a twin, and she was taken by the Nazis as a child with her sister, and they did horrible experiments on her and her sister. Joseph Mengele was the doctor attending to her and her sister. And you may know about some of the horrifying things that Joseph Mengele did to children. And if you don't, don't look it up unless you have a strong constitution because they were nightmares. And she lived through it. And eventually she forgave Joseph Mengele and the other Nazis who kept her and her sister in detention and tortured them for so long. And it's an amazing story that she has to tell. There's a documentary film called Forgiving Dr. Mengele. And when I saw it, I just, I couldn't believe it. I, how can someone find it in themselves to forgive this Nazi scientist who tortured yourself and your sister for so many years? And she said, next slide, forgive your worst enemies and forgive everyone who has hurt you. It will heal your soul and set you free. She didn't want to be a prisoner of that anger anymore. Now, 
again, like, look, it's not for everybody. When she did this action, a lot of Jewish people said, how dare you? This is dishonoring the legacy of those who died. This is a disgrace to your ancestors. And she said, look, I'm doing it only for myself and I'm doing it for me, not for the Nazis or for the Germans or whatever. I'm doing it so that I can be free from that burden. And I think hers is a powerful story. I encourage you to check out the movie uh, Forgiving Dr. Mengele. She created a museum called the Candles Museum, which is an acronym of some kind. Let me see if I can find out what it stands for um, because it's a powerful uh, thing. Yeah, the Candles Holocaust Museum and Education Center. Um, Oh, I don't know if I can find the acronym. It's Candles stands for something, but I don't remember exactly what it stands for in the website. Uh, doesn't have the acronym spelled out very easily. So I can't tell you what the uh, acronym is. But anyway, it's a remarkable story. Go to the website for Candles online and uh, learn more about Eva Moses Kaur. She's an amazing woman. She did a Reddit Ask Me Anything at one point, and it was amazing to see, you know, just people taking to her message of forgiveness and healing. And, um, you know, she's helped so many people who have suffered horrible traumas of their own learn to let go of it. And again, like we can learn from people like this, how to deal with our own less intense, perhaps, um, suffering and trauma. All right, next slide brings us to Rice Buyan. I may be saying that name wrong, but I I did my best there. And his story is so remarkable. And fortunately, Vox made a little video that's five minutes long. And I'm going to play the audio from this because it's an amazing story. And again, if you're not uh, looking at the slides, if you are looking at the slides, you can play the video, maybe skip over the audio here. Uh, But otherwise, um, you can check out the video and it's just amazing. Mark Stroman was in a shooting rampage to kill as many Muslims as possible as a retaliation of 9-11 terrorist attacks. So this is Rice Buyan speaking right now. He killed Wakar Hassan, a man from Pakistan. He shot and killed a man from India, Vasudev Patel. And on September 21st, 2001, he shot me in the face. This is part of a Vox series called The Secret Life of Muslims. As a child, my impression about the USA was it's a great country, beautiful country. I remember watching a lot of Western movies for a few dollars more. The good, bad, and the ugly. It was a dream that one day I should visit the wild, wild west and see all those things. After graduating from military school in Bangladesh, I went to Dallas and loved it. Worked pretty hard and within like a month, I was working as a clerk in a gas station. It gave me an opportunity to get to know the people, to learn the culture. I moved to Dallas in May 2001, three months before the 9-11 terrorist attacks. Ten days after 9-11, I was behind the counter. A customer walked in. He was holding a double-barrel shotgun, pointing at my face. I said, sir, here is all the money. Please do not shoot me. And then he mumbled a question. Where are you from? I was confused, and I said, excuse me? As soon as I said, excuse me, he pulled the trigger. I felt it first like a million bees stinging my face. And then I heard the explosion. Frantically, I placed both palms on my head, thinking I had to keep my brain from spilling out. I felt that my time was up. Images of my my mother, uh, my father, my siblings, and my fiance uh, appeared one after another one. And I was begging God, do not take me today. 
Ten days after 9-11, Stroman went on a shooting spree. Mark Stroman, a white supremacist, wanted revenge and shot three clerks who he thought were Muslims. Here in America, everybody was saying, let's get them. Two of his victims died. Stroman was convicted of murder and sentenced to death. They went to Hajj in 2009. So he's doing the Muslim... Sorry, I'm cracking up. I'm breaking up here. Not cracking up. That would be very inappropriate. Um, but I am tearing up because this story is so powerful to me. Um, yeah, Rice Bouyan uh, went to Hajj where you go to in, in Islam. It's requirement at some point in your life to make the trip to the holy cities of Mecca and Medina. Uh, and so that's what he's talking about here when he went to Hajj. Their mother. During the pilgrimage, she was rubbing on my face. She was crying, and uh, I heard my mom telling God that whatever my son wants to do with this life, help him. In my faith, in Islam, it says that saving a life is like saving the entire mankind. Mark Sturman has committed a heinous crime. There's no doubt about that. But all the good things I was taught inspired me go and do the right thing. Mark Stroman has been in this prison behind me for nearly 10 years. As he sits on death row, an unlikely champion is fighting to save his life. Bouyan will be partially blind for the rest of his life because of his injuries. But he wasn't interested in eye for an eye justice. I went to the U.S. Supreme Court asking for clemency for Mark Stroman. Went to the U.S. Federal Court, went to the U.S. State Court of Texas. For this man to forgive me, which I've done unforgivable, for him to come forward the way he did, it speaks volume. It speaks volume for the human race. He wrote a long letter to me. He said that my stepfather taught me some lessons that I should have never learned. I have unlearned some of them, and I'm still unlearning some of them. I don't know who your parents were, but it is obvious they are wonderful people to lead you to act this way, to forgive someone who is unforgivable. On the day he was executed, he put my name on the list of people that he would like to talk. As soon as he came on the phone, I said, Mark, you should know that I never hated you. I forgave you. And he said, Race, I love you, bro. He's the same person. Ten years back, his heart was filled with hate and ignorance. But when he came to know me, he saw me as a human being. He was able to tell me that he loved me and he called me brother. Today, I am the founder and president of a nonprofit called World Without Hate, educating people about the transformational power of mercy and forgiveness based on a hope that we can build a better world, a world without violence, a world without victims, and a world without hate. So that's the story of Rice Bouillon, and I'm always blown away. I would have thought that I would get used to hearing that story over and over again, but it always makes me choke up because it's such an amazing thing to do. You know, could I forgive someone who shot me in the face? I don't know. I don't know if I could do that, but I think it's a beautiful thing, and I, I think that you know, look, a lot of people will probably say, oh, the guy was pretending to, you know, care about you and call you brother just because he didn't want to die. And it's possible. That might be the case. But, it, it, you know, he he doesn't think so. Rice Bouillon says this is the same man who now calls me brother 
you know, Dylan Roof is an unrepentant white supremacist. I think that the guy who shot this dude changed. I think that the question really is, you know, look, he said, the guy said, my stepfather taught me things I never should have learned. And I think the question is, how can we get to people early in their lives and help them to start unlearning those lessons? Because I guarantee you that one of the lessons that the dude's stepfather taught him was the world's full of people who are out to get you and you have to get them first. And Rice Bouillon said, no, that's not the way the world is. My faith teaches me that I need to save people's lives. And so I'm going to step up and do the right thing. And that's the lesson we need to teach people is that, you know, if you are in this state of mind that says the world is out to get you, the world is out to get you, it makes sense to shoot people in the face with a shotgun before they shoot you. But that's a sick and pessimistic way of thinking about the world. And in the moment like 9-11, when everyone was so scared and, and so fearful, uh, it, 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 it's so easy for those impulses of hatred and anger to take over. And that's why, you know, in a, in a moment of crisis, you go to your impulses. So that's why you need to train your impulses to be better, to be about breathing and being here now and trying to see things clearly, not jumping to grab the gun and go out and kill somebody. All right, next slide is Debbie Morris. And she wrote a book called Forgiving the Dead Man Walking, which made me burst out in tears in the Orlando International Airport when I finished reading it many years ago. Uh, Some of you may have seen a movie called Dead Man Walking. If not, you should see it. It's a great movie uh, produced by Tim Robbins and uh, starring Susan Sarandon as a nun named Sister Helen Prejean. And Helen Prejean became the spiritual advisor to a man on death row, a number of men actually. And um, by working with this, these men, she came to understand that the death penalty was a horrible way for us to deal with violent crime. And um, so she wrote this book called Dead Man Walking, and it made, they made it into the movie called Dead Man Walking. Well, at that time, one of the victims of one of these men named Debbie Morris was watching the—she read the book. Again, I'm, I'm choking up here because I can't—these people are so amazing to me. I, I, I'm so humbled and, and awestruck by their beauty and their human dignity. So Debbie Morris uh, read Sister Helen Prejean's book and watched the movie and she was outraged. She said, how can you defend this man? How can you write this book? How can you support this movie and never once get in touch with some of the victims? And, and you know, we have stories to tell and, and what's wrong with you? And Helen Prejean was like, you're right. I'm so sorry. Like, I haven't been giving you, you know, my counsel. I haven't been here to help you. And, you know, maybe we can talk about it. So they met and they, they, they talked about it. And eventually Debbie Morris decided that she needed to forgive the guy, Robert Willie, who did horrible things to her. She, they kidnapped her. They killed her boyfriend. They raped her repeatedly. She managed to escape at one point. And this, the story is unbelievable because, you know, she watched her boyfriend's father yell and scream and dance when the guy was electrocuted, but he wasn't getting any peace from that revenge. He was just fixating more and more on the pain that he was swimming in. And she realized that she was swimming in pain too, and that the only way to deal with it was to forgive the guy. And she has a very religious perspective. And there's an interview here. It's, I think, like 20 minutes long. It's a really good program called the evidence and so i've linked it in the pdf i encourage you to watch it i'm not going to play the audio but please watch that video and 
you know, read her book because it's an unbelievable testament to the power of forgiveness to heal her, to move on, to try to, you know, to again, not be weighed down forever with this pain and trauma. Um, it, it's not a guarantee, you know, look, there's people who have forgiven their abusers and they've, you know, still been consumed by it, right? There's a Netflix movie, I think, about two rape survivors. One was in Steubenville, Maryland, I think. I don't remember details, but these two women and one of them was a victim of suicide and the other one, you know, in the, in the movie she talks about, she needs to keep moving and she wants to be free from the pain and she's focused on the future and, and that's beautiful and awesome. And then just recently, you know, that movie came out like two years ago or something. And then just recently the, the second woman uh, died by suicide. And by the way, I say victim of suicide because I heard someone's mother describe it that way. And I thought that was a very good way to put it. When we say commit suicide, we think of it as like a choice that the person did. Um, and it implies that, you know, they were either weak or, or they made this intentional decision. I don't think that makes sense. I think there's so much chaos and trauma and pain and trauma and, and horror and misery that the idea of someone making a choice is not apt in that sense. So anyway, um, yeah, that person wasn't able to move on. And I don't know if they specifically forgave them or not, but the point is that it's it's not as easy as just you forgive them and then you're happy and you're done. Uh, Debbie Morris makes this clear in this movie and in her book. But for her and for other people, it's it's a way to try to move past the trauma and it has been for me. And again, it's not necessarily about these big, huge questions because most of us aren't going to be in a situation where we have to face that question of can you forgive someone who's done the unforgivable? But rather, it's a question of, you know, how are you going to do this in small ways in day-to-day life so that you can be free from your own pain of someone cutting you off in traffic or you didn't get a job promotion or, you know, the person didn't go out with you or, or whatever it is, right? You feel slighted, you feel wounded by society, by the world. And again, you may have a right to that, but you don't want to turn into a bitter, nasty person. And I'm telling you that forgiving people in small, unsexy ways every day, that's the best way to not become a nasty, angry person. Because if you don't forgive the sour children, they will turn you into one of them. And that's a lesson I learned on the internet by playing video games. All right, next slide. Uh, Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania. This was an Amish community. It is an Amish community. Uh, that was the site of a horrible crime, again, involving guns. This mentally ill guy went to their schoolhouse and he kidnapped all the girls and he sent the boys out and he started killing people and it was just a nightmare. And I read a book called Amish Grace, How Forgiveness Transcended Tragedy. There's a picture of the cover on the next slide. And there's another quote from that book uh, further along. There was a guy in the community named Jack Meyer who said, I don't think there's anybody here that wants to do anything but forgive and not only reach out to those who have suffered a loss in that way, but to reach out to the family of the man who committed these acts. And the guy killed himself. He was a victim of suicide when the cops were closing in. Um, And, you know, they went over and spent time with his widow and his his children that he left behind. And, And they said, you know, this man's family is suffering just like we're suffering it's so easy for us to think, you know, oh, that family is evil. And, and, you know, after Columbine, people saw the parents of the kids that did it and they were like, the worst parents ever. And I hope they burn in hell and their kids are burning in hell. And, and how could they, but you know, it's not fair to punish the family members of someone who does something evil. 
So this story is about how the Amish community looks at forgiveness. And, and it's a little different than, you know, Debbie Morris, for instance, because in, in the Amish community, they have this ostracism process. You may know that in the Amish community, they have this, when a child reaches a certain age, usually around 14 or 15, they have a period of time called rumspringa, where you um, just, you spend some time deciding whether you want to live as the Amish live or live as, as they call it, the English live. And, you know, after you make that decision, that's it. You leave the Amish community, you're done. You do not get to come back. And so there is a very heavy burden of ostracism that can go into Amish society. But nevertheless, they, in this case, they felt like, you know, um, they needed to reach out with forgiveness and to help the family of the guy who did these things. And it's an amazing book. And I encourage you to check that out. Then while I was next slide preparing uh, this presentation, I came upon the story of the little girl uh, who was featured in photographs from the Vietnam War running down the street having been hit by napalm. And her name is, I'm probably going to say this wrong, but I'll give it a try, Phan Thi Kim Phuc. And she, um, uh, you know, she, her picture was very famous. This is one of the photos that in a way kind of helped turn the tide of the war because people were able to see what happened when napalm hit somebody. And she's naked in the photo and she's screaming and, and just horrified. And she ended up forgiving the people who did it. And there's a picture of her on the next slide. And she said, quote, forgiveness made me free from hatred. I still have many scars on my body and severe pain most days, but my heart is cleansed. Napalm is very powerful, but faith, forgiveness, and love are much more powerful. And she went on to say, uh, we would not have war at all if everyone could learn how to live with true love, hope, and forgiveness. If that little girl in the picture can do it, ask yourself, can you? Next slide. Uh, I, again, I was looking around for stories about forgiveness and I found this one. Tamika Lynch uh, was a woman, uh, I don't remember exactly where she was, but she was working at a convenience store and she was shot seven times during a robbery. And when she was asked about the guy who did it, named Alonte Kusar, she said, I forgive him. And she said something, I don't remember the quote, but she said something about, you know, he was in a bad place, I'm sure. And and uh, it's just, again, astonishing that someone could forgive someone else for having shot them seven times in a, in a robbery. Uh, you know, how much money could that have been? Not much. And it wouldn't matter if it was a million dollars, right? That's a horrible thing to do to someone. But she forgave him. And I think that's absolutely remarkable. And then finally, we have the story of Phyllis Rodriguez, uh, who lost her son Greg on 9-11. And she was obviously devastated and heartbroken. But she met and became friends with a woman named Aisha El-Wafi, who was the mother of Zacharias Musawi, who was one of the hijackers on 9-11, or one of the, the planners of the 9-11 atrocities. And they gave a TED Talk together. It's very powerful. I encourage you to take a look. It's a link on the last page of the PDF. Um, you know, she never found out where her son is. She never got a body. She doesn't know, really. She thinks she's dead, but she doesn't know if she's alive or dead. Um, and so they basically realized that they were both mothers in grief because of their children who were dead. And, you know, obviously, uh, Zachariah Musawi's mother does not condone what he did. And she uh, is heartbroken and devastated by what her son has done. Um, but, 
she was also, you know, in grief and having experienced a lot of loss before that too, what she talks about in her TED talk. And the story of these two women realizing how much they have in common, realizing that, you know, this act of terrorism tore both families apart um, is a common bond of humanity. And I think it's a beautiful thing that they recognize that commonality. And they said, you know, look, we have so much more in common than we do dividing us. And it's so easy for us to think, especially after terrorist attacks, to think, well, those people are just animals. What's wrong with their parents? They must not be human, you know, et cetera, et cetera. They're just evil. This is the thinking that goes on in Israel and Palestine, right? Israelis think the Palestinians are just savage beasts with no conscience. And Palestinians think the exact same thing about Israelis. And so you have this cycle of violence that just keeps going and keeps going and keeps going. Hatfields and McCoys, Capulets and Montagues, you know, pick a feud that's happened in history. It's the same thing from ancient grudge break to new mutiny, as Shakespeare says it. And the, the, the magic of humankind is that occasionally there are people who step up and go, no, I want this to stop. And sometimes it does stop. But as I said in the piece about The Last of Us Part 2, in order to avoid a war, one side has to give up something to which they are morally entitled. And that's maybe the hardest thing in the world for any of us to do. When it comes to big questions of life and death or, you know, surviving sexual assault or whatever, it's maybe impossible for many of us. I don't know. But certainly, again, on the smaller stuff, we can do it. And we as a civilization, you know, with nuclear weapons, there's no second attempt to get it right. We have to recognize the lethality of these threats. And even small arms can do a lot of damage. So... Yeah, there are some examples of amazing people showing mercy and compassion and forgiveness to people who have wronged them. And um, I think it's really important for us to, you know, I, I talk about these situations a lot because it's good for me to remind myself about their stories because I want to live that way. I want to forgive people who have hurt me. I don't want to walk around with the albatross around my neck of hatred and resentment. Um, and I hope you will find ways to release that anger and hatred in your own heart because it's not doing you any favors. It's not helping you out. It's not allowing you to get free. It's just another form of punishment and imprisonment. So that's what I wanted to talk about today. Thank you very much for listening, everybody. I really appreciate those of you who have gotten in touch. Um, I'm on Twitter at Duke Scath. Um, I'm on summer break, winter break. I don't know what break I'm on. Uh, we're going to be starting distance learning soon at school, but I have to report to the building, which I think is kind of silly. Um, hopefully I won't be in any real danger of COVID-19. Um, but nevertheless, uh, I'm a little nervous about it, to be honest. Um, but you know what? There's a lot of people who are in much more difficult circumstances than I am. So I'm counting my blessings. And I'm very grateful for the people around me who have shown me love and uh, given positive feedback on things I've written, whether it's the Nimbus X stories, part four coming soon, uh, or the Last of Us piece, or the piece I just got done with in terms of Imagicide, or um, yeah, the Syncast, or the Veteran Gamers podcast, or whatever I've put out into the world. If it's been helpful for you, awesome. Thank you so much for being in touch and letting me know and sharing the awesome stuff that you've been making. And I'm going to stop talking now. now 
Didactic Syncast is a production of the floating brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, which is solely responsible for its content. This program is a joint venture of Ribonucleic Records and Garrison Multimedia. Our show is made possible by a grant from the Fargus Foundation. Some restrictions may apply. See SOAR for details. Fight the power. So powerful. Have a good rest of the day.